Thanks for joining us for this message from Awakened Church. We believe in the power of God's Word, and we pray that you're encouraged by this message. Now lean in as we hear from God's Word together. One thing you need to know about Awakened Church is that our culture, we have it built into where we do verse-by-verse teachings. Uh, Driving in this morning, I was reminded of the first series that we went through. It was through the book of Philippians. Uh, We also, we had a Wednesday night at the time, and so we went through the book of Acts. But then I was just thinking through the years. We've gone through the book of Song of Solomon, and a couple years ago we did 1 Timothy. Last year we went through the book of Ruth, and so this year we get to start our year in Ephesians. And I'm so excited to be starting this book, and I'm excited to see what God's going to show us. And I believe that he's going to show us some very practical things. In fact, the book of Ephesians divides perfectly right down the middle. The first three chapters are about our identity in Christ, and the last three chapters are how we practically work this out. In fact, I was um, reading up a little bit on Ephesians, and what I found out was that it's a book that a lot of pastors love to um, quote from. It's been called the uh, Christian's Handbook or Manual to How to Live a Christian Life. Um, I know, uh, too, I talked to somebody in the first service, and they said they almost had Ephesians memorized from uh, chapter 1 all the way to chapter 6, and I thought that was amazing. It has been so transformational in a lot of people's lives, and so I'm excited to see what God's going to show us as a church. But when I was reading and kind of outlining and studying Ephesians, what I thought was of this time when I was younger, and I went to a public swimming pool with some of my friends, and what was so cool about this swimming pool is it had three different diving boards. You had a small one, a medium one, and then you had a large diving board. And I loved that going to this pool, and I'll get to that here in just a second, but when my friends and I would get to this pool, the first thing that we would do is we would do our cannonballs in the shallow end of the pool, you know, who could make the biggest splash, who had the better cannonball. Uh, We would also then put on our goggles, and we would dive down in the water and see what kind of treasure we could find. Like, you would be surprised what people go to a pool with in their pockets and then lose later on. And so we tried to find treasure. And then, of course, we played a popular game. You've probably played it too. I don't know why we do this in the pool because I'm not sure that I totally understand this game, but it's Marco Polo. And so we would play Marco Polo. But of course, with all things, everything got a little boring. We got a little tired. And so my friends would want to kick it up a notch. You know, they would want to go do something else. And so they would head over to the diving board. So they'd say, come on, Nate, you should come with us. This is going to be so much fun. But here's the thing you need to know about me. A couple of things. One, younger Nate, did not like the water very much. Like, I was never taught how to swim. I had a healthy fear of the water. I knew my limitations. And so going on the diving boards, that was a little outside those boundaries a little bit. Now, of course, being a little older, um, I have gotten better at it, and I'm not as fearful of the water. And the second thing you need to know about me is that I'm really terrified of heights. Like, I don't like them. Sometimes being on the stage, I go, whoa, no, I'm just kidding. I don't... I don't do that at all, but it's close sometimes. Um, But uh, if I fell, that would even be worse now that I'm thinking about it. But um, so uh, I had a healthy fear of heights. In fact, when we were building out this this building, uh, I was, went on a scissor lift with Pastor AJ, and all it is is just a giant ladder that goes up. And uh, he was like, do you want to see what the venue looks like from up here? And I was like, sure, I'll go check it out. Can't be too bad. I got on there. I held onto the bars, and he was bringing us up. And I was like, this is not good at all. And I mean, the ceilings aren't that high, but I remember I was holding on and he needed to plug something in. He was like, hey, can you move real quick? And I said, if you want me to move, you better bring this thing down. And that's what I told him. And he brought it down and I got off and he could go do his own thing. So that I still have not grown out of is heights. I still am very fearful of heights. But 
We would go to these diving boards, and my friends would encourage me, but I never wanted to do any of that, except this one day. And I don't know if I ate my Wheaties. Like, I don't know if I, like, gave myself this motivational pep talk or something, and I was like, you can do it. Like, just believe in yourself. I don't know if I stood in the mirror, and I was like, I think I can. I think I can. I, I don't know. Maybe Journey's song, Don't Stop Believing, came on, and I was like, hallelujah, I can do it. I will believe. I believe I could do it. And so, of course, my friends, we all get to the pool and we start doing our shenanigans and all of that. And so finally, they're like bored, as always, and we go up and they're seeing that I'm following them over to the diving boards. And they're all happy. They're excited. They're like, yeah, we're going to do this. And of course, I let them all go first. And I stand there and I'm looking at the steps and I go, here we go. And I grab and I start walking. What felt like a death climb to me, by the way, I just felt like I was climbing to my death. And I was like, this is how I'm going to go. This is it. And I remember I kept climbing going, is this diving board in the clouds? Like what's going on here? Like this is the worst kind of thing. But I got up to the top and I started to inch my way forward just little by little. And I looked down and there's all my friends. They're like, you can do it, Nate. This is going to be so much fun. They're cheering me on. They're like, jump, jump. And I didn't jump. I stood there frozen in my tracks. It felt like my knees were shaking. My whole body did. I wanted to actually just fall down and hug the diving board, close my eyes, and maybe I would come down. And magically, this would have never happened before. And so they're yelling, jump, jump. And I couldn't do it. It felt like I was on top of the AT&T building here in Nashville. Like, that's how bad it felt to me. And so I I just stood there frozen in my tracks. And when I was studying Ephesians, I thought about that moment in my life. Because sometimes when we're looking at the book of Ephesians, it can feel that way. Because Ephesians will call us to go places we might never choose to go on our own. And to be honest, sometimes Ephesians can feel way too high and way too deep all at the exact same time. But as I've looked over Ephesians over the last few months, I actually found myself becoming more and more confident in the bigness of who God is and his love and his grace and his mercy toward us, the power for those of us who believe in him. And I believe that as we study this as a church, we're going to feel the same way. See, I wish I could tell you that summer that I jumped off the diving board and it was the best summer of my entire life and it was great and it was the day that I became more confident in the water. But let's just say that I spent the rest of my life in the shallow end of that swimming pool. I missed out on the thrill and the joy of what diving into deeper water had to offer. So let me just say this as well. Similarly, we as Christians, if we avoid studying and applying deeper portions of the Bible, if we stay in the shallow ends of our Bible, we're going to miss out on the full experience that Jesus has to offer us. We need to allow him to take us to new depths as we follow him. And so when reading Ephesians, it can almost feel like a jump right out the gate. But before we jump off into the deep end next week, what I want to do is I want us to inch our way on the diving board just a little bit. And so by doing this, I want to just kind of set the backdrop of this book. And so Ephesians was written by a guy named Paul to to a city called Ephesus. And um, this city was a major city. It was known for one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And it was for the temple of the fertility goddess Diana. And this temple in the city of Ephesus was a major source of tourism and economy. It was a very wealthy city. It was a trendy city. It was a very well-educated city. And Ephesus was also uh, a provider of prostitution to thousands of people every week. See, Ephesus prided itself on being sexually progressive and socially tolerant of anything 
and everything except the church and Jesus. That's what they were not about. They didn't like that. It was really hard to be a follower of Jesus in Ephesians because Christians were under constant threat of suspicion and persecution. And so when we think about Ephesians, when we think about the city of Ephesus, we could easily start thinking about some cities here in America. As I've used some of those descriptive words, you could easily start listing off some cities in your own mind. You could say, that sounds like this one, or that sounds like that place. Just think about it. We could even generally say, our country is like that. We're a wealthy country, an educated country. We have a, we're kind of a trendy country as well. We live in a country that's becoming more and more sexually open-minded and socially tolerant of anything and everything except Jesus and the church that teaches it. So knowing this about Ephesus and the Ephesians who believed in Jesus, you might think that Paul would write them this big, long, sympathetic letter. He might give them this sort of pep talk. Maybe he would kind of write Journey's lyrics a little bit to them as well. You would think he would write them this letter about how unfair and how ungodly their city is and how they might go about changing things to make their Christian life a little easier on them. But he doesn't do any of that. He takes these struggling people and he gives them a vision for something that's even greater than the things that they're going through. He's going to give them strength or he's going to strengthen them with the eternal promises of God. He's going to remind them that they are the true temple or the true church of the one true God. He's going to give them a vision for how to live out their Christianity every day, like why worship is so important and what they should pray for and why going to church and being the church is so crucial and what's so amazing about this thing called grace. He's going to show them that their faith in Jesus actually has the power to change their family life, their work life, change their character and their morals in this godless city in which they find themselves living in. And I believe that as we study this letter, little by little, we're going to grow In our relationship with Jesus, our faith is going to grow, and we're going to find our identity in him. I think that we're going to have a better understanding of worship. We're going to have a better understanding of why prayer is so important and what is amazing about God's grace and how we will see how Jesus can change how we live our lives in light of all that he's done for us. And so going through Ephesians is going to take us a couple of months. And for some of you, knowing that we're going to be in one book that long might make some of your eyes glaze over just a little bit. You're like, that's a very long time. Or maybe it might make you really excited. It just depends on your Bible nerdum, I guess. You know, like that's, that's all it is. But I, I'm not just saying this. I truly am excited to see what God is going to show us. I'm excited that as we're in this new season as a church, I'm excited to see how we're going to step up, how we're going to find our identities, and how God is going to use this book in our lives to transform our city. And so as we've started to kind of inch our way on the diving board, we're going to do it a little bit more by looking at the first two verses in Ephesians. We're going to be looking at verse 1, chapter 1. It says this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In this little greeting, in the short intro that Paul gives the Ephesians church, I see three things that will help us grow little by little as we're trying to find our identity in Christ. And there's three things that we kind of almost need to own as we're growing little by little. And the first thing is this, that we all have a past. Look again at verse 1. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. That's what I want to look at first in this verse. Paul, 
an apostle of Christ Jesus. See, Paul wasn't always an apostle of Christ Jesus. Paul had a messy past. See, Paul's name was originally Saul, and he came from a very well-to-do family. He became a Pharisee, which was just a religious leader of that day. And he had power and influence within the temple, and he was actually a very well-respected man. He was a man of wealth, but not only was he a Jewish man, he also had Roman citizenship, and which was one of the highest honors of that day. And Saul, as he was known at that time, was someone who had everything going on for him. We could say that Saul was living his best life. But not only was Saul a part of the religious elite, he also had something else going for him. He was a scary guy. And the reason why he was such a scary guy is because of his hatred toward Christians. See, Saul, if you were a Christian and you heard the name Saul, it would send shivers down your spine. You didn't want anything to do with him. You don't want anything about him. You want to stay as far away from Saul as you possibly can. And the reason why is because he murdered Christians. He persecuted Christians. He tortured them. He put them in prison because, because he thought he was doing God's work and he thought he was protecting his Jewish religion and the Pharisee tribe that he belonged to. Saul was an enemy of the church. He was a scary guy. He was a bad dude, and we could say that he was even a terrorist towards Christians. But I love this story in Acts chapter 9. You can go ahead and read it later if you want, but it's the story of Paul on his way to kill more Christians, and he meets someone on this Damascus road, and who does he meet? Jesus. He meets Jesus on this road. And this is what I love about this story. Saul wasn't looking for Jesus. Saul didn't care about Jesus. Saul wasn't even interested in Jesus. But Jesus was looking for Saul, Jesus was interested in Saul, and Jesus cared about Saul. And so what happens is that Jesus asks him this question. He's like, hey, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I think if Saul were to, or if Jesus were to come and tell Saul that today in our day and age, I think he'd be like, hey, uh, Saul, you need to stop messing with my kids, because if you're messing with my kids, you're messing with me, and you don't want any of that. So stop messing with my kids right now. That's essentially what Jesus is getting at with Saul. And so Saul has this encounter with Jesus, and it changes his life. And after this encounter with Jesus, he changes his name to Paul. See, Paul had a messy past, and he wasn't afraid to talk about it either. In fact, a few times in his many different letters that he writes, he talks about who he is. In some of his letters, he calls himself the chief of sinners, a a blasphemer, a persecutor. He never hid from who he had been. He owned his story, and he owned his past. And because of his willingness to own his story, Paul's pain became a platform that he could preach forgiveness and redemption. And Paul would go on to write most of the New Testament and become a very influential leader, and he was a church planner as well. But even though Paul had a messy past, he knew about God's grace because he experienced it firsthand. And here's the point I want to drive home today. Even though Paul had a messy past, we too have messy pasts as well. There are many things that I'm sure we've said and done that we wish we wouldn't have said or done. I'm sure there are ways that we've acted that we would be a little embarrassed for it, that if people found out about it, if we were about to display it on the screens, you'd be like, I'm never coming back to this church again. Like, it's a little too much for me. I don't want that. But I'm pretty sure that if your name was going to be written in God's word, there would be certain things that you would definitely leave out of God's word. You wouldn't want certain things to be said about you, flaws and sins that you have. I know it's true for me. I know that there would be certain things I would leave out for sure in my past. I wouldn't want some of my sins to be revealed. 
I know if my name was going to be forever cemented in God's word, I know that I would probably say things like Nate was a loving guy. He was a caring guy. He uh, loved his church. He uh, was a, a loving husband and a loving father. You know, I would say like he was a good looking guy as well. You know, I'd throw that one in there. Yeah, I would say that he was a funny guy. Like he really probably should have gone into comedy, but you know, he decided to take the higher road and go into preach the gospel. And so those would be things that I would say about me. I never would say that I pursued Christians or killed them. I wouldn't call myself the chief of sinners. I would leave those things out. Paul refused to let his story imprison him. He allowed his story to position him. Paul had sinned against Jesus and his church, yet God poured out his grace abundantly on Paul. It doesn't matter how badly you've sinned against God in your past or even this morning, God can forgive you. God can restore you and God can use you to serve him. God's grace is greater than your sin. And you might be tempted to sit back and go, well, pastor, you don't know me. You don't know the things that I've done, the things that I've said, the way that I've acted. You don't know how I've done this or that in my life. And you're right. It's probably good that I don't know some of those things. And I don't know everything about you, but listen, I know the one who does. I know the one who loves you just as you are. And he loves you so much and he cares about you so much. He doesn't want to leave you there. He wants to give you his grace and his love and his mercy. And he has a plan for your life. God is not shocked by your sins. He's not like, oh no, I had no idea you were like that. This changes everything. I had a plan and a purpose for your life, but not anymore. Like now I got to go to a plan B. I got to go use this person over here. No, God doesn't do that at all. He knows all, he sees all, and he loves us just the same. And he gives us his grace. Amen. We are all sinners separated from God. Yeah, you can cheer for God's grace. That's a good thing to cheer for. (laughs) The Bible tells us we all have this problem. We all have this sin issue. See, Paul had the sin issue. I have the sin issue. You have the sin issue. We're all sinners. Paul never once blamed his situation or his circumstance. He's not like, I'm a victim of this sin. No, he never did that. He never said it's because I grew up as a Pharisee or I was raised this way. And we can't do the same thing either. We can't say I was raised this way or I was brought up this way or we can't make excuses for it. We're not victims of sin. We all said, hey, sin sounds pretty good. So we chose sin. But just like Paul, we can have the blood of Jesus cover our sins. And just like Paul, we can be shown and given the exact opposite of what we deserve. And we can experience God's grace. See, if you feel like your past is too much for you and what you've done is too bad, Paul's story should give you hope. That no sin, no matter how we view it, is too big for God to forgive us and find us faithful to serve him. You need to know this. God's grace is bigger, deeper, wider, more powerful than all your sins put together. In fact, I would even say all the world's sins put together. Because listen, sin is something you do. Guilt is something you feel. Shame, disappointment, condemnation, humiliation are all things that you're going to carry with you. But God's grace is freely given to you. We don't deserve it, but we're given God's grace. So if you want to grow little by little, you just have to own. We all have a past but we can all be marked by God's grace. Here's the second thing. If we want to grow, we need to understand that we all have a name and we all have a calling. Continuing in verse one, it says this, by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus 
and are faithful. Like I said earlier, Paul wrote this to a church that he had planted. And what was interesting when I read this verse, there was a name that stood out to me in this. And maybe it stood out to you. It's a name that he gave these Christians and he calls them saints. Now, when I look in this room, we all have had parents. That's how we got here. And so we all have a name. And if you are about to have a, ki- uh, have a child or maybe you're thinking about doing it, you're thinking about some names that you want to name your child as well. And so I've done some research for you all, too. This is how helpful I want to be. When we gather, I want to give you some practical tips as well. So um, if you are about to have a child or you're thinking about it and you're like, I just don't know what to name it. We're, you know, my spouse and I, were arguing over it. Let me settle some disputes as well, okay? So we're getting two things done today. So the, I just want to tell you the top five names that people named their girls uh, in 2020. So if you're stuck on a name, here's the top five, starting at number five. And, and maybe if you want to, you can say, if I say your name, you can cheer a little bit too. Uh, number five is Ava. Number four is Emma. Hey, we've got some Avas. Four is Emma. Three is Riley. Two is Olivia. And one is Sophia. That's, Sophia was the most popular name of all of 2020. Now, if you're like, okay, I have a girl. We've already decided, but we're about to have a boy and like we're stuck. Well, Same thing. Here we go. Number five is Elijah. Number four is Aiden. Three is Jackson. Two is Noah. And here's number one. If you're ready for it, it's Liam. Liam was number one. I don't know. Maybe they just watched a lot of Taken or something like that, or they're real big fans of Star Wars Episode One, which, come on, maybe one Sunday we'll talk about Star Wars here. So, um, and how terrible the first three are. And if we do that, we'll let you know so you can stay home so the rest of us can nerd out. But, <laughs> but uh, my name is Nate, Nathan, or Nathaniel. I have a lot of variations. I go by all of them. And uh, so I did a little research on my name as well. And uh, what I found out was that we were doing really good in 2004. Like we had it going on. And uh, when I was born in 1983, I saw only 10,000 of us had the name Nathan. So I feel like I was right in at just a trendsetter right from the beginning. But really in 2004, everything started to kind of go off the deep end for us. And um, so I'm going to start having a meeting for all the Nathans out there because what I found out was that in 2028, we're going to be in the 1000th percentile. So our name is kind of dying off a little bit. So we need to kind of resurrect that a little bit. But if you've given your life to Jesus, you too have a name and your name is Saint. Did you know that? Your name is Saint. My name is Saint Nate. I don't like that as much. I like Saint Nathaniel. It sounds a little more (laughs) refined and elegant. Hmm, I like that. Saint Nathaniel. We were led by worship by uh, Saint Kelly. Uh, We have Saint Jacob and Saint Butch and Saint Justin back there helping run our live stream and our worship here. I see that we have Saint Rhett back there and we have Saint Jason and we have Saint Mike and we have Saint Devin over here and I see that we have Saint Courtney and I see Saint Kara and uh, let's see, I see uh, Saint uh, Michael and I see uh, Saint Riquetta and can I just keep going here? There's Saint James and that actually sounds way more biblical. I just realized that. Oh, that's awesome. I didn't even think that. St. Chris over here, like we're all saints. If you've given your life to Jesus and you're following him, you are a saint. But referring to ourselves as saint feels a little weird, doesn't it? Part of the reason why it feels weird is because our culture and how it's defined saints or sainthood. 
It's been defined as someone who has a reputation of being extremely moral or good. In fact, the Catholic Church even adds a little bit more to it, and it says that you must also be able to perform a miracle. So no wonder why when we hear the word saint, we don't think of ourselves. Yet that's not what the Bible teaches when it comes to this idea of saint. In the Bible, to be a saint actually means to be set apart. Sorry, every time I think about saint, I just started laughing because I thought about St. James. I just, I don't know, it's stuck in my head. (laughs) Give me a minute. (laughs) That's really funny. A A Christian is a saint because they're set apart from something. We are set apart from our sins because of the blood of Jesus. We are set apart from this world because we have different values and loyalties now because we're following Jesus and we're set apart for good works. So if you've given your life to Jesus, you have a name and it is saint. But just like we talked about, Paul also had a name change. He used to be called Saul, but he changed his name to Paul. And and Paul was probably named after the first great king of Israel, King Saul. And probably young Saul was probably like, ah, I'm growing up and I'm going to be better than the great king of Israel. You know, I'm going to be known for great things. I'm going to reach new heights, do even better things than King Saul did. And at first glance, we might not think much about a name change. I'd be like, ah, that, you know, people change their name. It's okay. We just might breeze past that. But understand this. Saul was named after one of the greatest kings of all of Israel who reached new heights, who did great things. And after his encounter with Jesus, he goes, no, I'm going to change my name to Paul. And what Paul means is little. So he went from Saul to Paul. He went from big to little. It'd be like being known as Big John your whole life. Be like, hey, how you doing? I'm Big John. Hey, nice to meet you. I'm Big John. Big John, how are you doing over there, you know? And so you see somebody, he, somebody has a conversion with Jesus, and Big John has a conversion with Jesus, and he goes, don't call me Big John anymore. Call me Pee-wee. Like, that's how it would be known as right now. Just call me Little. Paul is saying, I no longer want to be Saul. I want to be Paul. And maybe this gives us a little insight into why he was so powerfully used by God because he saw himself little in the sight of God. Before he boasted about his accomplishments and his achievements and his learning and all that he had. But after he met Christ, he's like, no, I'm little. And see, I think this should remind us that we're never too small for God to use, only too big. God is not looking for a few good men and a few good women with certain personality traits, or he's not looking for their wit or anything like that. It's easy for us to think, well, you know what? I'm not the rich guy. You know, I'm not the good-looking enough guy or popular enough, bold enough, gifted enough, talented enough. But listen, that's not how it works at all. God doesn't call the qualified. He qualifies the called. How do I know that? I'll tell you, 1 Corinthians 1 verse 27 says, Instead, God chose things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they are wise. And he chose things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. Our call is to not be self-absorbed in our thinking, wondering if God can use us, but to step into what God is calling us to do. If you're struggling with shyness, God can use that. If you're here today and you're struggling with anxiety, God can use that. If you feel like you're poor or not good looking enough or not talented enough, listen, God can use that. Paul considered himself to be the least of anyone to be used by God, yet God still used him, and he can use you as well. 
because you have a name, but don't forget, you also have a calling. I want you to look again at those uh, five words, by the will of God. Because we often can think about Paul or look at his life and think he had some sort of exalted position. And really, he was in a place of great leadership and significant leadership. Not many people were called to be apostles. But even today, we look at people who have the title pastor or evangelist or worship leader. And we think, well, they, they're the ones that are the spiritual elite. They're the ones really making a difference in our world We could even look at a staff and think, well, I'm not part-time or full-time on a church staff, so I'm not really making a difference. They're the ones making a dent in God's kingdom. They're the ones doing God's work. They're the spiritual elite. And then we tend to look at ourselves and go, but I'm just working away as an accountant or as an attorney or a waitress or a nurse, a teacher. I'm just working away in the military. I'm not as significant as that person is. They're the ones making a difference in God's kingdom. You need to understand something today. Every one of us is called to be something by the will of God. Paul was called to be an apostle by the will of God. In the same way, you might be called to be an architect or a contractor by the will of God. You might be called to be in business by the will of God. You might be called to be a nurse by the will of God or a policeman or in the military by the will of God. I'm so thankful for all the things that people are called to do. I know what some of you are doing in this room, what your careers are and what, you're, what you do for a living. And I'm so thankful for the many varieties of things that you are called to do by the will of God. So let me illustrate it this way. Let's say that you're having some chest pains and you're like, this isn't a good thing. This is gonna go south real bad. Would you want Nate, a pastor by the will of God to help you? No, you don't want that at all. I mean, you might want me to pray for you, but you don't want me to help you necessarily. You might even want me to help you drive you to the hospital so that you can meet a doctor by the will of God to help you. Let's say you get better and you're like, oh, okay, I'm much better now. I've gotten over this. And you start to head out and somebody threatens your life. Would you want a doctor by the will of God to come and protect you? No, you want a policeman by the will of God to come and protect you. What I'm saying is that we each have a part to play. We all have a role by the will of God. Listen, the highest calling of God is what God has called you to be. There is no higher thing. We need to be faithful to what the Lord has set before us. And you might look at me and go, well, you know what? It's a higher calling to preach God's word and You'll often hear me say every time I come out here, it is my honor and privilege to teach God's word. I take this very seriously. I think about and pray so much over what am I saying? Am I saying the right things? And there's oftentimes I'm like, Lord, I I don't even know what I'm doing sometimes, but would you just show me something? And God has shown up. And it is a high calling to teach God's word. But listen, the highest calling is what God has called you to do. Don't feel like a second-class citizen. Don't feel like a second-class Christian because you don't have a microphone or a stage or you can't teach God's word or you can't sing a song. Don't feel like a second-class citizen or Christian because of that. Do what God has called you to do. The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 12, it says, There are different kinds of spiritual gifts, but the same Spirit is the source of all of them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. God works in different ways, but it's the same God who does all the work in us all. 
A spiritual gift is given to each, so uh, each of us, and here's the important part, so that we can help each other. Then Paul goes on to say something that's a little surprising and might catch us off, uh, off guard a little bit. He says, hey, sometimes those things that seem to be the weakest, guess what? They might be the most important. Sometimes the members of the church that we think don't even matter might actually matter the most. For instance, when you meet someone, you might notice certain features on them. You know, they have beautiful eyes or a great head of hair or they might be really tall or, you know, they've got a great voice, a beautiful singing voice. And those are good things. We should notice those things. But the fact of the matter is we could live without a lot of those things. We could live without a a beautiful singing voice. Really, we could live without a voice altogether and make life really difficult. But we could live without a voice. We could live without a full head of hair. Now, I like my hair. I wouldn't want to lose it. But we could all live without a head of hair. (laughs) Nope. (laughs) Uh, This is great. I love it. Sorry, I'll I'll be praying for you guys. (laughs) I won't say any jokes, but... uh, I'll I'll just leave it at that. I'll pray for you guys. You can, though. You can live without a full head of hair. We can live without a lot of things that we tend to focus on when we meet someone or notice someone. But there are those internal organs, though, that we can't live without. See, we can't live without a liver. We can't live without a heart. We can't live without lungs or a brain. You know, when I met my wife, Jen, back in the eighth grade, I didn't just walk up to her and be like, girl, and that's G-U-R-L-L-L-L-L-L-L-L-L, just so we're clear, okay? <laughs> I didn't say, girl, you know, your, your liver is so awesome, like, your esophagus is on point, like, oh, man. No, it was her smile and her eyes that attracted me to her. But it was the internal organs that were the most important. It was her internal organs that was keeping her alive and were more important than her eyes or her smile. And in many ways, in the church, there are internal organs. There are people working away in obscurity that we don't see. But the Bible tells us, you know what? God sees and tells us that your father who sees you in secret will reward you openly. You see, certain people who are in the spotlight, you might be tempted to think, well, what would we do without them? How could we go on? They're so important. Well, maybe and maybe not. But then there's that person that you don't know anything about that's very important to God. And listen, you might be one of those people. You have a name, saint, set apart for a calling by the will of God. Be who you are and do what God's called you to do. The last thing, The final thing, if we want to grow little by little, the thing we need to understand is that we all have an identity. So I want to close off verse one, three simple words, in Christ Jesus. Just want to look at those real quick, in Christ Jesus. Because what I believe that Paul is trying to remind the Ephesian church, what Paul would say, hey, awake at church, Clarksville, Tennessee, you need to remember that you have an identity in Christ Jesus. In fact, a few times in this book, he tells us and reminds us of our identity, In verse 3, he says that we're blessed. In verse 4, he says you're chosen. Verse 7, he says you're redeemed. I love what chapter 2 says. He says, you are God's masterpiece. And he later tells us, too, that we're adopted into his family. There's so many ways that Paul reminds us of our identity in Christ. And I love that he's reminding of this because we live in a day and age where people are more confused now than ever before of who they are. And so if I walked up to you and I said, who are you? How would you answer that question? 
Would you say, well, I'm a husband or a wife, you know? I'm a dad, I'm a mother, I'm a brother, I'm a sister. Would you start listing off your abilities? Would you say that you can play the guitar a little bit or you can ball out on the courts like you've, nobody's ever seen before? Would you say that I do this for a living or I do that for a living? See, those are important concepts of your life, but they don't fully answer the question. See, what if your relationship ended, you lost your abilities, or you lost your job? Would you still be you? Paul wrote Ephesians to help us understand and discover who we are in Christ Jesus. God created us to do something here on this earth. And an identity and a purpose found in Jesus is something you can never lose. And when you discover those things, you better hold on because your life will never be the same. See, we can become so wrapped up in ourselves and who we are and how we can impress people with titles or letters behind our name and all of that stuff. But it's better to remember what the Lord says about us. I love what he says in 2 Corinthians 5.17. It's one of my favorite verses. I quote it almost all the time that I can because I believe it's so powerful. And I hope that by the end of this year, you'll have it memorized as well. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and behold, the new has come. We are in Christ and we should be looking at Christ as the source of our identity and the person he wants us to be in him. What should set you and me apart in this world? What should be the distinguishing mark in us is simply Jesus. So let's not get wrapped up in labels and categories. Let's get wrapped up in Jesus. I want to close with how Paul opens this letter. He says, grace to you and peace. I want to close with those two words, grace and peace. He opens the book with them. And in six chapters later, he closes the book with them. It's almost like grace and peace are the perfect bookends to this entire letter. Now, Paul's greeting in this letter isn't just a simple, hello, how are you doing today? Hope everything's going fine. Hey, hi, how are you doing? None of that kind of stuff. He greets them with grace and peace. And I think this is significant because Paul wanted people to enjoy a peaceful life, but he knew they could only do it if they understood God's grace and if they only received God's grace. Paul was forever marked by grace. He understood it. Grace is a word that we could summarize the entire gospel. We are saved by grace, meaning we didn't deserve it. We didn't earn it. There was nothing about it that we deserved. We deserved the opposite. But God was gracious towards us that while we were still sinners, he sent Jesus, born of a manger, to live the life we couldn't live, to die the death that we deserved to pay, His body was broken. His blood was shed to pay for our sins. And then Jesus rose again on the third day, conquering sin and death. And while we deserve to be separated from God, Jesus brought us close to God to have a relationship with him. And so my question today is, are you filled with peace? If not, it's probably because you haven't learned or experienced the most important thing. And that's grace. You haven't experienced God's Grace. Paul would later say in Ephesians 2.8, God saved you by his grace when you believed, and you can't take credit for, it, for this. It's a gift from God. Our salvation comes by grace through faith in Jesus. Paul lived all but a peaceful life. He was in prison a lot. He was running for his life. He was persecuted. But he had peace, 
Even in the midst of his chaos and the trials and the things he had to go through, he had peace because he was marked forever by grace. And if you're here today searching for peace, maybe the first step you need to do is experience God's grace. Thanks for joining us for this message from Awaken Church. We'd love to hear how this message or the ministry of Awaken has impacted your life. Let us know at awaken.church forward slash my story.